and its chairman, my dear brethren and sisters from the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother Shane has reminded us, our last class we were considering the events recorded in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ, at about the age of six weeks, was presented to Yahweh at the temple. And Anna, or and Simeon and Anna at that time, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke glorious words concerning that child. We read in the in Luke chapter two and at verse thirty nine that when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And so Luke records that having completed their obligations at the temple, Joseph and Mary left Jerusalem and we believe they travelled back to Bethlehem. So the account in Luke here seems to suggest, taken on its face value, that they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. But we believe that that Matthew chapter 2 fits in between the end of their, they fulfilled all things according to the law of the Lord they re, uh, and the statement they returned into Galilee to their own city Nazareth. We believe that when we uh, examine the, the, the facts it becomes apparent that before going to Nazareth they returned to Bethlehem and there while they are at Bethlehem the events of Matthew chapter 2 take place. And so there in the middle of verse 39 we, we leave the Gospel of Luke and we turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And there we have events recorded in Matthew that, that uh, take place between those two statements of Luke chapter 2 and verse 39. Now when we come to the book of Matthew we find that Matthew presents to us the Lord Jesus Christ as the king. In Matthew chapter 1 his genealogy is traced through the royal line from David down to Joseph, his legal guardian. And thus marking out the right of the Lord Jesus Christ to the throne of David. And so he's set there before us there in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 1 as the seed of David the heir to the throne of David. The very book of Matthew opens with the words, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we notice how David is given precedence over Abraham here because the Lord Jesus Christ in this gospel is presented as the king. Here in chapter 2 we read of people, Gentiles coming from the east, coming to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We read in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 3 the words of, of John the Baptist. Uh, uh, chapter 3 verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, those words can be rendered God's royal majesty is at hand. And so you see, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we find that Matthew chapter 1 
speaks to us of the birth of the king. Matthew chapter 2 speaks to us of the reception of the king, how he was received by the people. Matthew chapter 3 speaks to us of the herald of the king. Matthew chapter 4, which speaks of the temptation of Christ, speaks to us of the trial and triumph of the king. When we go on into chapter 5, we find that the chapters 5, 6 and 7 are the policy speech of the king. And so we have the Lord Jesus Christ presented before us here as the king. And it's chapter 2 that we're particularly concerned with this evening. And in chapter 2 we find the reception of the king set before us. Basically, Matthew chapter 2 reveals to us the reception that the Lord Jesus Christ received. He received homage from afar, but he received hostility at home. He was rejected by his own people, while Gentiles came and paid homage to him. And that's what we have set before us in this second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now the chapter opens, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, you see the statement is very explicit, Bethlehem of Judea. In actual fact we find that there were two towns in the land of Israel by the name of Bethlehem. In the 19th chapter of Joshua we read of another town by the name of Bethlehem. In Joshua chapter 19 and verse 15 we read of a town called Bethlehem in the, in the territory of the tribe of Zebulun which was up in the north in the regions of Galilee. Uh, Matthew, uh, Joshua rather, 19 and verse 15 reading of the territory that was allotted to Zebulun we read in verse 15 and Kathath and Nathalel and Shimron and Idalah and Bethlehem twelve cities with their villages this is the inheritance of the children of Zebulun according to their families these cities with their villages and it is claimed that this city of Bethlehem in the territory of Zebulun was about seven miles northwest of Nazareth. But you see, the scripture marks out quite clearly that it was Bethlehem of Judea in which the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Bethlehem of Judea was about five to six miles south of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus was born in that city in the days of Herod the king. Now we did briefly look at the days of Herod the king in our opening night of this series of studies. And we saw the characteristic of Herod. We saw that Herod was a, 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 an evil man. His, uh, his reign was, was characterised by assassinations, murders and bloodshed. It was, a day, it was a time when the stranger that was among the Jewish people had got up very high above them and they'd come down very low. The days of Herod the king fitly described that set of circumstances described in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 where it describes the Lord Jesus Christ as a shoot out of dry ground. 
Those were the conditions in, Ju- in uh, Judea in the days of Herod the king. It also marks out the period of time in which the Lord must have been born. Herod the Great reigned from BC 41 to BC 4. And the Lord Jesus Christ was born before the death of Herod. Herod died probably shortly after these events of chapter 2. In fact he died while Joseph, Mary and the Lord were down in the land of Egypt. Shortly after these events of the beginning of chapter 2. And so it was just prior to BC 4 when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Probably BC 5 or 6 would be the year when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And so those statements not only mark out to us the exact location of his birth, but it gives us an indication of the time of his birth and of conditions prevailing in Judea at that particular time. And we read in that first verse, Behold, there came wise men from the east, The statement in the diaglot renders Behold, Magi from the east. That is the sudden way that it's introduced. Suddenly, unexpectedly, there in the days of Herod the king, suddenly there's Magi from the east. They come from the east. Now, the word wise men there in the Greek is Magi, as the the diaglot says. Rendered it. And the Magi were a, a sect, a Chaldean sect, from the region of Babylonia. They were a sect that was, as a sect, were very superstitious. Uh, they were skilled in the interpretation of omens and of signs. They were skilled in the knowledge of astrology and astronomy. And we find they were a very prominent community of people in the city of Babylon. But we find when we go back to the book of Daniel that some 600 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ when the people of of Judea had been carried away to Babylon we find that Daniel the prophet was elevated to a very high position in that nation. And in the book of Daniel and at chapter 5 and at verse 11 we read the words of the... um, the mother of Belshazzar, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 11 we read her words on the night of Babylon's uh, overthrow. She said, There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. Now all those particular sects of people in, in, in Babylonia, Daniel was made master of them all. He was made master of the magicians. And the word magicians there refers to the Magi. Which, of whom we read in Matthew chapter 2. And so Daniel, you see, had a very great influence upon those people in his particular day. And Daniel was a man 
who prophesied concerning the coming of the Messiah of Israel. Over in chapter 9. And at verse, um, verse 25, for instance, one of the prophecies of Daniel, we read, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem and the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Uh, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city, city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And so you see, here in this ninth chapter of Daniel, Daniel was given particular prophecies concerning not only the coming of the Messiah, but also the time period that were to elapse until the Messiah should be manifested. And then he's told also certain facts concerning the life and work of the Messiah. And so there, about 600 years before the birth of the Lord, we find uh, Daniel, these events would have been a little less than that, probably 560 years or something like that. Uh, no, 540 years rather, something like that, before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very time of the fall of the city of Babylon. And there was Daniel elevated into this position of great influence over these particular sects of the Chaldeans. Now it seems quite obvious from, from Matthew chapter 2 that Daniel's influence on many of them had been very great. And many of those wise men of Babylon had accepted the teaching of Daniel and it had been preserved down through the ages. And there was a little group there who had held fast to the teaching of Daniel and had remained faithful to his words. And they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah of Israel. And so we find that, that at this particular time it was revealed unto them that the Lord Jesus Christ had been born in the land of Israel. You see, he says there in verse 1 that they came from the east. We're not particularly told what country they came from. It's a fair assumption they came from, Bab from Babylonia. It could have been from Persia because the, when with the, the overthrow of Babylon by Persia, Babylon's influence was taken to Persia. Many faithful Jewish people were taken to Persia who could have also assisted in establishing this little Gentile ecclesia in that place. But we're told that they came from the east, from the region of Babylonia and Persia, and they travelled some six or seven hundred miles down to the land of Israel that they might, might pay homage unto uh, the, the, the child that had been born as king. And so suddenly and unexpectedly this group of Gentiles is there in the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 2 we read that they were saying where is he that is born king of the Jews? You know, it's both a question and a statement in that. 
They're not, they, are, they made a statement and they asked a question. The statement was, the king of the Jews is born. It says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And so they came into Jerusalem making a statement, the king of the Jews is born. And they asked a question also, where is he? That's what they wanted to know. Where is he? Now we look at the statement, King of the Jews. It's a characteristically Gentile statement. Now when we compare this with such places as the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John, in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John and at verse 33, we read here, Again, the words of a Gentile. The words of Pilate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou king of the Jews? You see, it's coming out of the mouth of a Gentile. When we go back to the book of Matthew, in chapter 27, and at verse 29, again we read this statement. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now these were the soldiers of the governor. They were the Roman soldiers belonging to Pilate. And they were again calling him King of the Jews. But you see, when we look at verse 42, we have the words of his own people, the words of the Jewish people themselves. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. We find that that statement, the king of the Jews, is a characteristically Gentile statement. The Gentiles called him the king of the Jews. The Jews always called him the king of Israel. And so you see, it indicates to us that these were Gentiles that came from the east. They were Gentiles who had come because it had been revealed unto them that the king of the Jews had been born. You see, here were people who were moved by faith. They didn't come and say, well look, you know, we've seen some remarkable signs in the sky. We, we, is it that a king's been born here? Or we feel that perhaps there's some great events happening in this land? There was nothing of that about it. They were positive in the statement they came with. The king of the Jews has been born. And we want to know where he is that we might worship him. That was the statement of the, of the Magi as they arrived in the city of Jerusalem. Here were men moved by faith and they were coming to pay homage to him who had been born as their king. Now in this chapter I believe we have a foreshadowing of things that were to come to pass. As we shall see in a moment, the Jewish people, as we know only too well, rejected their king They said, we have no king but Caesar. And they rejected their king and they crucified him. 
But you see, here we see that here were Gentiles coming to pay homage to the one that they knew was born and destined to be king of the Jews. It's a little foreshadowing of the fact that the Jewish nation was it were to reject their Messiah, while Gentiles would gladly accept him. And in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, we read in verse 46, And then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, and he's speaking to Jews. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as who were ordained to eternal life believed. And so you see, the preaching of the gospel was taken from the Jews and given unto the Gentiles. Just as it's foreshadowed here. As Jews rejected the birth of their Messiah, but Gentiles readily accepted him and came to go pay homage under him. And so it was a foreshadowing of that. And we believe that the coming of these wise men to the city of Jerusalem in the way that they did was also a foreshadowing of far greater things yet to happen in the future. You know, in the 60th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 16 reading from verses 1 to 5 Arise, shine for thy light is come and the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee for behold the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people But Yahweh shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see, all they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee, the forces of the Gentiles shall come to thee, the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of Yahweh. It's foreshadowing a time when Gentiles will flow up to the city of Jerusalem to worship the king and to bring gifts unto him. And that's a glorious time that is yet to be established upon this earth. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and reigns as a glorious king in Jerusalem, those words will be fulfilled and Gentiles will flow unto the city of Jerusalem bringing gold and incense and showing forth the praises of Yahweh. Psalm 72 
Likewise, prophetic of the future day when the Lord will be in the earth again. Psalm 72 in verse 11 we read, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, and the poor also, and him that hath no helper. Going down to verse 15, And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. Speaking of the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be a, a glorious king in Jerusalem, speaks of the way that the Gentiles will flow up to that city, to pay homage unto him and to bring gifts unto him, to bring gold and to bring incense and to show forth his praises. You know, and in this little enactment here at his birth, there was a foreshadowing of these things. A little foreshadowing of the future time when the Gentiles will flow up to Jerusalem to praise and to worship him. And so they come to Jerusalem not only with the statement that the king of the Jews is born, they weren't only moved there by faith, but they came there with a question. Where is he? They knew he was born, but they did not know the place. You see, Daniel prophesied concerning the coming of the Messiah. Daniel gave t- details of the time period that would elapse before he came. But Daniel said nothing about where the Messiah would be born. It was a reasonable assumption that he would be born in Jerusalem. That would be that is the place where he's to be manifested as a king. So obviously they come to the city of Jerusalem. But of the exact location they didn't know. Because Daniel had left nothing on record concerning the place of his birth. Neither do we find it in the prophecy of Ezekiel another prophet involved in the city of Babylon. Neither do we find it in Ezra, Esther or Nehemiah. And so you see, this was an aspect that these these wise men from the east were ignorant of. They knew that the king of the Jews was to be born and had been born, but they were ignorant of the locality in that land where they might find him. And so they come to the city with that question. Where is he? I say, uh, and, and giving support for their statement that the king of the Jews was born, they state, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. We have seen his star in the east. Now it seems quite obvious really that Daniel must have left these wise men in Babylon some particular prophecy which indicated that there would be signs in the heavens at the time of his birth. A prophecy that we haven't got. It would be useless to us anyway, so what would be the point of leaving it to us? It was possibly a prophecy that Daniel left to those alone in the the region of Babylon. It was relevant to nobody else Here were people who were skilled in the knowledge of the heavens. Daily they watched the stars. Daniel must have left some prophecy to them which would indicate to them the time of the birth of the Messiah. 
And as they daily watched the skies, knowing from other signs that the time was drawing near, they saw some sign in the heavens which was a sure indication to them that the Messiah had been born. What that star was, we don't know. We're not told. There's many theories as to what it was. Some suggest it was a combination of planets. But that doesn't fit all the requirements of Matthew chapter 2. What it was, we don't know. It might have been a star that was provided for that particular purpose that shone then and has never shone again since. We don't know. But it was a sign that Yahweh had given unto those people, probably through the prophet Daniel, that when they saw this particular sign in the heavens, they would know that the Messiah was born. When we look at the appearances from Matthew chapter 2, we see that the star appeared twice. It appeared once to them in their homeland in the east, where they saw that star and having seen it, it was an indication to them that the Messiah was born. And so they make preparation and they set off and they go to Jerusalem because they expect that it would be in Jerusalem that the Messiah would be born. After they'd been in Jerusalem and consulting with Herod and so forth, they set off on their journey to Bethlehem. And after they'd left Jerusalem for Bethlehem, they see that star again. The record does not say that the star led them from their homeland to the land of Israel. It merely says they saw it in the east, or they saw it uh, in their homeland. And then they went to Jerusalem, and having left Jerusalem, Yahweh shows them that star again, And on this occasion that star leads them on and stands over the place where the young child was. See, I don't believe a combination of planets can fit that requirement. There's no way, if you're going on a five mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, that a couple of planets way up in the sky can lead you on to Bethlehem and then stand over the place where the Lord Jesus Christ was. I believe it was quite obviously... A, a, a star or a light in the heavens that was provided for the express purpose of indicating to the wise men at that time where the Lord Jesus Christ was. And so then we find that they state in verse 2 that we have seen his star in the east and I come to worship him. The word in the east there, the same as it is in verse 1, is the word anatol. It means literally the rising of a light. Literally a rising or the rising of a light. So those words can be rendered, we have seen his star in its rising and I come to worship him. You see, when they were over in the region of Babylonia, if they'd seen the star in the east, it would have been in the opposite direction to Jerusalem. But it doesn't necessarily say that they saw it in the east. They saw it in its rising. And seeing it in its rising and recognising it as a sign of the birth of the Messiah, they set out on their journey to travel down to the city of Jerusalem. And they come, it says, to worship him. The word worship, it's a word which means to pay homage to. They hadn't come to worship him as 
as God. They come to pay homage to him as one who was born king of the Jews. And in verse 3 we read, And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Now we know of the character of Herod. The word troubled, incidentally, is the word terasa. It means to stir or agitate. You can describe the act of stirring up water with a stick. To stir or to agitate. And Herod became, became very stirred and agitated when he heard this. You know, within the previous two years, Herod had had two of his own sons murdered because he feared that they were more, more popular with the people than he was himself. That's the sort of man he was. He was a man who was absolutely insane with jealousy over his own position. In his life, Herod had put to death the two sons of his favourite wife, Aristobulus and Alexander. He also had put to death Antipater, who was his heir. He'd had his favourite wife, Marianne, herself put to death. He'd had her brother, her mother and her grandfather put to death. All over family jealousies. That was the character of the man, Herod. He was insane with jealousy over his own position. And now, suddenly and unexpectedly, there's a little party of people come to Jerusalem and they're saying, the one is born who is king of the Jews and they want to know where he is. And Herod was troubled. We can understand how that man became agitated, how his jealousy became stirred up. You see, Herod was himself a foreigner and a usurper of the throne in Jerusalem. He was an Idumean, an Edomite. He had no rightful claim to the throne in Jerusalem. Now here was word of one who was born to be king of the Jews. One who would have a rightful claim to that throne that he, he, he possessed. Not only would he have a rightful claim to that throne, but being of Jewish descent and born to be king of the Jews, he must surely be popular with the Jewish people. He would surely be more popular with the Jewish people than Herod the Edomite was. And Herod would weigh these things up in his mind and he would recognise that this child that was born was a rival who must be destroyed. And Herod was troubled. And it's, you know, in the initial stages he, he shows remarkable control and remarkable cunning. Another thing that characterised his reign and his life. Tremendous cunning. And, and so Herod uh, instigates this cunning now. He, he exercises remarkable control over the situation in these early stages. But you see, we're not finished with verse 3 yet. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. And we can understand why. But the verse goes on, And all Jerusalem with him. And all Jerusalem with him. You see, it wasn't only Herod that became stirred up and agitated, but the city of Jerusalem likewise. We can understand perhaps how the people of Jerusalem would become agitated. 
when they heard this being said, knowing what sort of a man Herod was. What was he going to do? What was going to happen in Jerusalem now that this was happening? And indeed the people would be becoming concerned. But you know, as historians show us, the lifestyle of the city of Jerusalem at that time, we can understand on another score too, why that city would become troubled at the prospect of the presence of the Messiah of Israel in their midst. I quote one writer, or the writer here is quoting word for word, from, or much of it anyway, word for word from, from Edishon. But this writer says, let us then first look at the manner of his reception by Jerusalem, the city which as son of David he could claim as peculiarly his own. It was the very centre of the circle of Old Testament illumination. It had all possible advantages over every other place in sumptuous entertainments. In the women's apartments, friends from the country would see every novelty in dress, adornments and jewellery and have the benefit of examining themselves in looking glasses. And the lady visitors might get anything in Jerusalem from a false tooth to an Arabian veil, a Persian shawl, an Indian dress. And then after furnishing what he calls too painful evidence of the luxuriousness of Jerusalem at the time and of the moral corruption to which it led, he concludes by giving an account of what one of the sacred books of the time describes as the dignity of the Jerusalemites mentioning particulars like these, the wealth they lavished on their marriages, the ceremony which insisted on repeated invitations to the guests to a banquet and that men inferior should not be bidden to it, the dress in which they appeared, the manner in which the dishes were served, the wine in crystal vases and so on and so forth. That gives us a little idea of the lifestyle in the city of Jerusalem. Is it any wonder that when the prospect of the Messiah's presence in their midst was brought to their attention that that city was troubled? The presence of the Son of God in their midst could only be a threat to the selfish lifestyle that they lived. One who was to come to save them from their sins why, it was the sins that, they, that, that the people of that nation were delighting in. They did not want anything that would upset and disrupt the peaceful uh, pursuit of their pleasures. The threat of a new king, what Herod was likely to do, well, there was no knowing what it might bring upon that city. The presence of the Messiah of Israel in their midst They didn't want it because it might upset or interrupt the enjoyment of the present. You know, as we look at Jerusalem at that time, that city that was privileged above every other city in the world, that city that had more goodness extended to it than any other place on the face of the earth, and yet that city that had taken all the blessings that Yahweh had given and using it to their own gratification. What a lesson for us, brethren and sisters. 
who stand as the most privileged people on the face of the earth at this time. But that city became so involved with, 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 with the affairs of the present life that the presence of the Messiah came as a threat rather than a comfort. And they became agitated when Gentiles came from the east saying, the king of the Jews is born. And we know the reaction of that city. That city rejected their Messiah. They had no time for a crucified saviour because their lives were too involved with the things of the present, the pleasures and the vanities of this present age. And what a lesson, brethren and sisters, that needs to provoke us to deep and earnest thought. Could it be that we could become so involved with the affairs of this life that we have no time for a crucified Saviour? Could it be that we can become so involved with the affairs of this life that we can take the blessings that Yahweh has given us and use them to our own gratification? to our own pleasure and our own profit, rather than giving ourselves as bond slaves under the one who has purchased us. That was the failing of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was agitated and troubled at the prospect of the presence of their king. And so, in the dilemma in which Herod had been placed, he resorted to call together the chief priests and the scribes. Verse 4 tells us. When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And so he called together the people in that city who were skilled in the knowledge of the law. And he said to them, right, now can you tell me where the Messiah will be born. You know, it's a remarkable thing. Those people were able to give him an answer, an accurate answer, a correct answer. They went back to the words of the prophet, Micah, and they said, well, yes, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But you know, the amazing thing is, brethren and sisters, although they were able to so accurately answer that question, they were so utterly blind to what the prophet was really saying. You see, in verse 5 we read to them that they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet. And he quoted in verse 6, he's, verses 5 and 6, he's quoting from Micah chapter 5. And the verse they quote is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. where in the prophecy of Micah, Micah was uh, foretelling through chapter 4, foretelling the time when Jerusalem will be elevated, when uh, uh, the first dominion will come to the daughter of Jerusalem, when the daughter of Zion will arise and thrash and consecrate the gain unto Yahweh and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. And then in chapter 2, going on, we read in, ver- in chapter 5, in verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, 
Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And there these scribes and the chief priests could put their finger right on it and triumphantly answer the question of Herod. The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. You know, when we look at what verses 1, 2 and 3 are saying, you see, verses 1, 2 and 3 are telling, or were, were supposed to be telling Israel the treatment that they would give their Messiah when he came. Verse 1 points out that they would smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. They would treat him with utter indignity and contempt. You see, and verse 2 speaks of why. Because though they'll be little among the thousands of Judah. You know, Bethlehem of Judah was so small and insignificant that in the book of Joshua it doesn't even get a mention. And if it wasn't for the fact that David was born in Bethlehem uh, and and that Ruth came back to Bethlehem, we possibly wouldn't read of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small, insignificant place. A little town that was in stark contrast to the city of Jerusalem. City of Jerusalem with all its gaiety and frivolity, with all its polish and finish of of, of, um, city life, was contrasted with this little rural town. Quiet little Bethlehem. Quiet, hard-working little Bethlehem. But you see the prophet saying that out of Bethlehem, He would come who is going to be ruler in Israel. But of course, it was because of his humble origin, because of the humble, lowly nature of that man, that the pride of Jerusalem smote him on the cheek. They treated him with contempt and indignity. And in verse 3 we read, Therefore will he give them up till the time that she which travaileth has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And so what Micah was saying is that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem but he would be treated with contempt and indignity by the people of his own nation and therefore that nation would be given up until the time that a change could be wrought in her and then she would be restored and the kingdom would be established. See, the scribes and the chief priests went right to that very passage of scripture And they said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But they completely missed the message that Micah was getting at. They completely overlooked it because at a later time it was the chief priests and the scribes that were foremost in treating him with contempt and smiting him upon the cheek and bringing the judgment of God upon that nation that they should be given up and scattered among the Gentiles for 2,000 years until he should return and restore them to divine favour. And it's a little lesson, brethren, so he says, here were men who were skilled in the knowledge of the law. When given a question, where's the Christ going to be born? Straight to the passage. Straight to the chapter and verse. But they were blind to the real message of that section totally blind and and in their blindness they fulfilled the very things that Micah was foretelling and again it's a lesson for us brethren and sisters we can study the word but we've got to be careful that we listen to the spirit's voice
that we rightly interpret the things that the prophets were saying. We carefully listen to the Spirit's voice and act accordingly. And so, Herod has got his answer. He wanted to know where the Messiah was to be born. He's been told now that he, the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. That he would be, uh, that, that he would be a, 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 a humble man. He would be despised by the proud city of Jerusalem, is what Micah foretold. There are certain differences that we read, that we notice between the statements of Micah and the statements here of Matthew. Uh, Micah says, though thou art little among the thousands of Judah. Here in verse 6 we read, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among uh, uh, the, the princes of Judah. And of course Bethlehem is not the least now because of the things that happened there. But Bethlehem itself originally was a place of little significance. Micah says among the thousands of Judah Matthew says among the princes of Judah because the princes represented the thousands and then for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel now that little last little aspect I shall rule my people Israel is only found in Micah is not found in Micah in so many words those words appear to be quoted from the second of Samuel five and verse two. Uh, in second of Samuel chapter five and verse two, we read. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel, and Yahweh said to thee. Thou shalt feed my people Israel and thou shalt be captain over Israel. Those were words spoken to David. Thou shalt feed my people Israel. And this word here in Matthew, this word rule my people Israel, as the margin says, means feed. It's a word which means to shepherd my people Israel. And of course when we go on in the prophecy of Micah, we read of um, in Micah chapter 5 there we read of how he will raise up seven shepherds and eight principal men and that seems to be the principle that's taken up here by Matthew as, and the scribes as they go back there to the prophecy of Micah but you see when it says he shall rule my people Israel he shall shepherd my people Israel what a tremendous contrast is in those words Herod the Great who ruthlessly and with cruelty ruled and dominated and oppressed those pe that people here was a king who was going to be a shepherd to my people Israel and so in verse 7 we read that, that then Herod when he had privately or privately called the wise men inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared that word diligently means accurately. I've been led to believe that the tense used in this verse signifies that he kept on asking. He kept on seeking and asking. Seeking out accurately when this star had appeared. Probably asking one and then asking another to see if he got the right answer. 
He was desperately concerned with knowing when that star appeared. Because you see, he would recognise that the appearance of that star in the sky when these wise men were back in their homeland would mark out the time of Messiah's birth. And that was what he was anxious to know. How old would that young child be now? You see, that young child was probably some months old. You see, the star would have appeared probably in, in, in the region of Babylonia or wherever it was they came from at the time of his birth. These wise men would recognise the sign in the heavens. They would then have to make preparations for the journey. They would have to wait for a suitable time of the year when travel might be easy. And then they would have a six or seven hundred mile journey two or three months journey before they got there. Now all this time had elapsed since the time that the Lord Jesus Christ was born. He must have been some months old. In fact, we find that when Herod actually um, gave vent to his, his, his vengeance upon the city of Bethlehem, we find that he killed all the male children under two years of age. So there's a possibility that the Lord could have been over 12 months, perhaps 12, 18 months old at this time, before these wise men come to pay homage to him. He's at least several months old. And Herod was particularly concerned that he might accurately know when that star appeared in the sky, so that he might know the age of the child he's looking for. But you see, Herod, he's He's being very cunning here. See, here, verse 8, he says, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search diligently for the young child. Again, the word search accurately. Make diligent, accurate search for the young child. And when you've found him, come back to me, because I'd like to go and worship him also. So that was the story that Herod put up to the wise men. And probably they believed it. There's nothing in the story to indicate that they didn't. And so we read, uh, they were, so he sent them on their way off to, the, to, off to Bethlehem that they might find this young child and that they might come back to him that he might know where he is and go and worship him also. His intentions, of course, were to murder that child. And we read in verse 9 that when they heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. So it came and stood over where the young child was. So we find now that providence again goes to work. The wise men have left the city of Jerusalem. They're on their way down south to Bethlehem. It's not a long journey. Bethlehem was only five or six miles away from Jerusalem. You see, I believe there's an element of urgency about the whole situation now. You see, five or six miles can be walked by a healthy person in an hour, hour and a half at the most. On horseback, it probably only take half an hour, maybe less. That's how close the Lord Jesus Christ was to Herod. It would only take Herod with his soldiers and his horsemen. He could be there in half an hour. So there's an element of urgency now about the whole thing. I believe that this is why Yahweh now put that star in the sky again. 
And that star led them on and marked out to them the place where the young child was. That their mission might be speeded up. That they might get there and fulfil their mission before Herod would ever think it was possible. And so the star leads them on. When we read it there that the, they saw, the star which they saw in the east went before them. And those words went before them mean to lead them on. It led them forward. That's what the words mean. Till it came and stood over. And that's exactly what the words mean. To stand up above where the young child was. And when they saw the star they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They rejoiced with exuberant gladness. You know the prophecies reveal that in the future times when Gentiles come up to the city of Jerusalem as they draw up to that city they will be moved with great joy and rejoicing. And I believe we see a foreshadowing of that here. The foreshadowing of the joy that will be upon the minds and hearts of the people as they go up to the temple of Jerusalem and as they know they're drawing closer into the presence of the king they will be moved with exceeding great joy as they contemplate all the goodness that Yahweh is extending to them. You know, brethren and sisters, these men saw a sign in the heavens that they were getting close to where the Messiah was. And they became vibrant with joy and excitement. We stand in a very similar position. In the political heavens around us on every hand, there's signs telling us, crying out to us, that the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is very close at hand. At any time, very soon, we could be caught away to be right in his very presence. You see, but are we like those wise men? Are we vibrant with excitement and the prospect of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and being with him? Are we prepared to sacrifice anything and everything that we might be pleasing and acceptable with him when when he arrives? See, each and every one of us must answer those questions for ourselves. Or do we see the prospect of his coming? as something that might interrupt the things that we want to do in this life now. We read in verse 11 that when they were come into the house, showing us that Joseph and Mary now had a more permanent, settled, comfortable uh, residence in Bethlehem, having moved from the stable in which the Lord was born into a house, it says, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so they found the house being helped by God. They found the house and they entered in. And there they saw the young child with Mary his mother. They saw he who was born to be king of the Jews and they fell down with their faces to the ground and they paid homage unto him. They rendered unto him the homage that was due to one who had been born to be king. 
And when they'd done that, they opened up their treasures. They opened up their treasures. The word treasure means literally something that they laid up, something stored up. The word appears quite a number of times through the New Testament. We find it in such places as Matthew chapter 12 and verse 35 where the Lord says, A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So you see here's treasure, things that are treasured up, stored up in store for the day of judgment that's coming. A good man has good treasure in his heart. He's got a record of good works and of good things in the sight of God. But an evil man, he's laying up evil things. He's only got an evil record and evil things of which he will be rewarded at the coming judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here you see the heart is likened unto a treasure box. And out of that heart come either good things or evil things, according as a man has sown in his life. We go over to chapter 13, verse 52, we find the word used again. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed under the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Here's a man, he's a, he's a scribe instructed in the principles of the truth. He's a man that's given his mind to the study of the principles of the truth. And he's got treasure in his heart. He's able to bring forth treasure, things new and old, which can be of help and assistance to others uh, at the time that they're needed. In the 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul speaks of the truth as being treasure in us, as being treasure in earthen vessels. In Colossians 2 and verse 3, we read of the Lord Jesus, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ being all the treasures of, of, of wisdom and knowledge and so forth. You see, these are treasures. These are the true riches, the true treasures, things that are laid up in the heart. And here these men, they come unto the Lord Jesus Christ and they open up their treasures. Symbolically, they open up their hearts. You see, not literally, of course, in this case. Literally, of course, they must have had some sort of a, um, a, 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 a box or, or, or carrying case, which they opened up and brought out these particular gifts. But those things, I believe, represented things that they had in their hearts. They opened up their treasures and they presented unto him. They presented unto him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. You notice the word presented there in the margin has an alternate rendering of offer. I believe it's a word that carries with it the, the, uh, the significance of, uh, of a sacrificial offering. So here were gifts which were in the sense of sacrifice. And they gave gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now each of those things is very significant. Gold, as we well know, symbolises a tribe 
and perfected faith. First of Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 likens trials at this particular time like unto the trying and refining of gold. And so this gold represents faith. And you know, as we look at these men, as they've been moved to make this long and difficult journey down to the, to, to the land of Israel, that they might come and pay homage to him whom they believed would one day be king of the Jews, we see those men motivated by faith. A faith perfected by works. The very fact that they were there. You see, and he presented unto them gold and frankincense. Now frankincense, we know, is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. Frankincense was offered every Sabbath day in the Holy of Holies with the showbread. Frankincense was, was offered with the meal offerings that the children of Israel brought, as outlined in Leviticus chapter 2. The word frankincense in the original Hebrew carries the significance of whiteness or purity. And the burning of frankincense sent forth a sweet savour unto Yahweh. It speaks of praise out of a pure heart, a heart of single-minded motiveness in the service of God. It speaks of praise out of a pure heart. You know, here were these men flat on their faces, prostrating themselves, paying homage unto this one who was born king of the Jews. Here were people who had come six, seven hundred miles, a long, difficult, dangerous journey that they might worship, they might pay homage, they might give praise unto he who was born king of the Jews. You see, and then to that was added myrrh. Now in the letters to the seven ecclesians, there was a city there named Smyrna and that's the Greek word for myrrh. And Smyrna was, a, was an ecclesia that was persecuted. It was suffering great trials and persecutions. There were those in Smyrna who were assassinated, uh, martyred for the, um, for the sake of the truth. But it was an ecclesia that was pleasing under, under the Lord Jesus Christ because he saw them holding fast to the principles of his truth in the face of that difficulty and opposition. You see, myrrh was a gum that was obtained from a tree, putting a gash in the tree. There was a gum that had a bitter taste. When it was bruised, it sent forth a sweet savour. And that little ecclesia in Smyrna was so typical of that myrrh. It was bitter taste. The life that they was forced upon them was bitterness. But because they gladly accepted it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ it sent forth a sweet savour unto him. And so you see there's myrrh that represents it represents uh, uh, those people who will willingly suffer for the love that they have for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an acceptable life springing out of sacrificial love. Because you notice the order in which these offerings were offered. First there was gold. First there has to be faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Then there was frankincense. There was the desire to praise him out of a pure single-minded heart. And then there was sacrificial love being prepared to suffer 
that they might do those things that are pleasing under his. I believe that gold, frankincense and myrrh represents the state of heart and mind that those wise men had as they were moved to come and pay homage to him who was born king of the Jews. You know, in those passages from the Old Testament that we looked at in Isaiah chapter 60 and in Psalm 72, we read that in the future times the Gentiles will bring gold, they will bring incense, they will show forth the praises of Yahweh. Gentiles in that time will be moved by faith. They will be moved by pure motives to to praise and, 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 and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father in the heavens. They will then gladly accept the difficulties and the sufferings necessary to do those things that are pleasing unto the one that they love so much. And those are the things that were represented here in these wise men as they came here. And we see that as a little foreshadowing of the Gentiles in the future age. Very soon, brethren and sisters, we must stand in the presence of the King. Will we be able to make those offerings when we stand before him? Will we have a pure and a tried faith? Will we be able to stand before him offering praise out of a pure heart? Will he look into our lives and be able to see that sacrificial love that we've willingly suffered that we might do those things that are pleasing under him? May it be, brethren and sisters, that he might see each of those in every one of us.